1: Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War episode 177. This is going to be a very important episode. Not that all of them aren't important, but this one especially so. Because what we're going to do in this episode is tell the entire story of the armistice in one go. That means we will touch on the situation on the German home front, which was the real impetus for the armistice push from the German politicians. We will then go into a bit more detail about the removal of Ludendorff from his position at the head of the German army, an important step to remove him as a roadblock to peace. Then we will discuss the abdication of the Kaiser, who long resisted but eventually realized that he had no other choice but to give up his crown. After all of this turmoil was over in Germany, they then had to receive the armistice terms from the Allies, a situation which we will dig into, including how it was presented to the Germans, the circumstances in which they received it, and then the events leading up to the signing. The second half of this episode will then look at November 11th at the front. The fighting that had been going on for over 4 years would not stop until exactly 11am when the war was over. This meant that there were men dying in attacks right up until the final minutes, completely pointlessly uh, I might add. Once we cover the events at the front, we will then set us up for to do some house cleaning next episode to finish up our story of the military side of the conflict. Up to this point in our story, the road to the armistice has been a long one. The offensives, the counterattacks of 1918, the removal of Bulgaria from the war, the developing disaster in Austria-Hungary, and then the peace notes of October. All of these had played a role in breaking the German desire, both politically and at the front, to continue the war. In both of these realms, politics and military, they pushed the German leaders into an important decision, the removal of Ludendorff from his position as quartermaster general. But before we start all that, I would like to thank everyone who has chosen to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com Great historyofthegreatwar, where for just $5 a month you can get access to special Patreon-only episodes, like the one that was released a couple days ago about the, Germ- the war in German East Africa, and the one for this month, which will be about China during World War I. So head on over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to find out more. The removal of Ludendorff from the army would be precipitated by his own actions, specifically the order that had been sent out by Hindenburg and Ludendorff on October 24th, which denounced the actions of the government and Berlin, and of President Wilson. On the 26th, the two generals would meet with the Kaiser, a meeting prompted by Prince Max, and the Kaiser was not in a good mood. He emphasized that the order was given against his wishes, and of the wishes of Germany's political leaders. He then criticized the two generals for having supported armistice discussions so recently, and then now completely altering course to instead wanting to fight on, and then also spreading that message to the army, which called into question the entire leadership of Germany. He then made it clear that he had lost faith in the general staff, and their leader most of all saying to Ludendorff that while he recognized his military achievements, quote, it was a misfortune, however, that he was too overburdened. The military task was so large that it required the commitment of his entire character. End quote. Ludendorff, seeing that the Kaiser wished to curtail his power, instead offered his resignation, and the Kaiser accepted. When Hindenburg tried to do the same, the Kaiser rejected it, fearing that having both men resign at the same time would demoralize the army. Ludendorff would be replaced by General Wilhelm Groner, who had previously been in charge of arranging and organizing rail transport within Germany. By all account, he was a very skilled person at management and logistics. He also had two very important characteristics that made him desirable for the job. The first was that he was a realist, and could see that the German army and the nation were in a very bad situation and needed out. The second, and perhaps more importantly, was that he was not Prussian, and what is instead from Wurttemberg. This was important because the political leaders had been trying to distance themselves from Prussian militarism, and they wanted to do that hopefully by putting their military under different leadership. At the front, this change did not cause too much havoc. Feelings were generally mixed. But there was not enough concern to cause any problems beyond what was already happening, which was already pretty bad. After reviewing the situation at the front, Groner uh, ordered a general retreat along the entire western front, from the sea to Lorraine. One German pilot would fly behind the lines during these days and say, We all saw the roads crowded with columns of men marching back. Back on the home front, things were just as bad, with the sailors in Kiel in open rebellion by November 4th, and the revolution beginning to spread. Lubeck, Cruxhaven, Hanover, and Hamburg all saw sailors and soldiers flying the red flag of revolution, and Bolshevism in some cases, and they demanded both an immediate armistice and an end to the military dictatorship. On November 8th, the Social Democrats, concerned that the left wing of German politics was being taken over by radicals, issued an ultimatum, that unless the Kaiser and the Crown Prince abdicated immediately, they would walk out of the government. If that were to happen, then it would almost certainly would result in full-scale revolution in Germany. On that same night, news reached Berlin that Brunswick and Munich had been overtaken by revolution, Stuttgart was now in the hands of workers' councils, and Cologne was on the brink of the same. Things were falling apart, and the only way that they might be brought back from the brink was the abdication of the Kaiser. There had been discussions between Max and the Kaiser about abdication since about mid-October, and then when Groner was appointed to lead the army, he also believed that the Kaiser should step down, but always the Kaiser refused. The key to this belief that he could and should stay in office was that he believed that the army was still loyal to him. This resulted in the Kaiser and his closest supporters entertaining the idea of leading the army back home to take back control from the radicals on the home front. Groner had more realistic views, knowing that this would cause full-scale civil war, and that most of the army probably would not even fight against fellow Germans for the sake of the Kaiser staying in power. He would tell the Kaiser and his advisers that, quote, "...the army will march back to Germany, peacefully and orderly, under its commanders and commanding generals, but not at the command of your majesty, because it no longer supports your majesty." To try and prove to the Kaiser that the situation was very dire, Groner would ask 39 officers, a group designed to provide a good sample of the army, if they would follow the Kaiser back home to suppress the revolution. When the responses came back, they were less than inspiring. Of the 39 officers that were asked, only one said yes, 15 said possibly, and 23 were a resolute no. It was clear that the army would not follow the Kaiser, and so there was only one step left. Prince Max made it clear to the Kaiser that his abdication had become completely necessary to save Germany from civil war, while also telling the Kaiser that there was some concern that the army may not be able to ensure his safety. When the Kaiser agreed to abdicate, it took some time to get the proper statement prepared and ready for release. During this time, the Wolf Telegraph Agency in Berlin jumped the gun and reported that he had renounced his throne. It is likely that this was due to Max's doing, concerned that the Kaiser would continue to delay his abdication, perhaps delaying it so long that it became too late to save Germany. When the Kaiser, or I guess former Kaiser at this point, heard of the announcement to the press, he was furious, shouting, "'Treason, gentlemen! Barefaced, outrageous treason!' Unfortunately for Wilhelm, it was already over, and his plans to give up the imperial throne but not that of Prussia was just no longer feasible." Seeing that there was nothing that could be done, he agreed to enter exile in Holland. Back in Berlin on November ninth, Prince Max handed over the chancellorship to Fritz Ebert. The transfer of power was required to break any connection to the previous government and monarchy. The Hohenzollern dynasty in Prussia, and Germany as a whole, was at an end. Now there was just one more thing to bring to an end. The war itself. On November 8th, a German delegation would arrive at Allied headquarters to discuss an armistice. This delegation was led by Matthias Erzberger, the leader of the Catholic Center Party and the current German Secretary of State. It actually took some time for the German leaders to find people who were willing to be part of this delegation, as it was almost certain that being a member of it would have serious negative effects on every participant's future political careers. Erzberger was only persuaded to accept as a matter of duty to the nation, and he would pay for it, because in 1921 he would be shot to death by German ultra-nationalists who regarded his part in the delegation as nothing short of treason to his country. On November 7th, the delegation started its journey, and it would travel all day and all night to arrive at Compagnie after having started on the other side of the German lines, then moving through the lines during a ceasefire arranged by the Allies, and they would arrive at Allied headquarters by rail at 7 a.m. on the 8th. And just a short while later, they would meet with Foch, who would present them the armistice. While the German delegation was in transit, Foch made something of a mistake that would cause a lot of headache for the French authorities. When Foch had agreed to meet with the German delegation, he had arranged for a ceasefire to let them pass through the lines, a very typical practice, you don't want delegates getting hit by artillery shells. However, to get the information about the ceasefire to the Germans, he used the Eiffel Tower radio transmitter, which basically everybody in Europe could listen in on. News spread pretty fast about what was happening, and it was misinterpreted by many. Instead of being correctly read as a local ceasefire that would only last a few hours, some believed that it was a permanent one across the entire front. Imbrest, the head of the American naval forces there, was informed of this development, and he shared it with Roy Howard, the head of the United Press wire service. Howard, who was ecstatic to get such big news delivered to him, asked if he could send it out, and the admiral said, sure, why not? And Howard ran to his office and cabled back to New York the headline, quote, Paris, November 7th. The Allies in Germany signed an armistice at 11 o'clock this morning. Hostilities ceased at 2 o'clock this afternoon. With the news out, the French began a lengthy series of refutations as they tried to make sure that everything was properly denied and properly corrected. While this big news was being ironed out, just the fact that there were discussions happening between the Allies and the Germans that appeared to mean peace was on the horizon was front page news everywhere. Once the German delegation had arrived and met with Foch, they were informed about the terms of the armistice. It had 34 clauses, and they included the following. Germany had to evacuate all occupied territory in Western Europe. This included Alsace-Lorraine, which was technically part of Germany. The Germans had to remove all military troops from west of the Rhine River, and they had to give the Allies three bridgeheads over the river which they would garrison. These would be at Mainz, Koblenz, and Cologne. The Germans would have to give 5,000 locomotives, 150,000 railcars, 10,000 trucks to the Allies. All submarines and capital ships of the high seas fleet must be surrendered. All of the territory gained by Germany in the treaties of Brest-Litovsk and with Romania had to be given up. Huge amounts of military equipment had to be surrendered, including thousands of machine guns, aircraft, and more artillery pieces than Germany even had. And they had a lot. Germany also had to agree to the continuation of the blockade, which was already starving the country, while at the same time agreeing to hand over 140,000 head of cattle among other livestock, which would just make the food situation even worse. Meeting all of these obligations would have been impossible, and Erzberger knew that, but there were no negotiations to be had. From the time that it was presented to them, the German delegation had only 72 hours to accept, which would mean that they would have to accept before 11 a.m. on November 11th. After they had had been presented with the information, Erzberger radioed to Berlin to get instructions on how to proceed. It would take 26 hours just for the message to arrive because of the chaos in Germany. A response would not be received until 7 p.m. on November 10th, with the response being Erzberger, you have the authority to sign the document, I guess. Erzberger would do all that he could to try and get better terms, but very little was gained during the hours that he had. Pretty much the only changes were very small adjustments, like altering the wording slightly so that Germany did not have to hand over more items than it possessed. The most important piece, the blockade, was non-negotiable, but the French said that they would reevaluate it after the armistice was signed. At 2am on November 11th, a final review of the document began, and at 5.20am, it would be signed. Once it was official, messages went out to all of the military commands on both sides, stating that the fighting would stop at 11am that day, but that there would be no communication between the troops of both armies after the armistice came into effect. Many commanders were also concerned about the conduct of their men after the armistice came into effect, and this caused some to send out orders for what officers were supposed to do when the time came. General Groner would advise the German generals that, quote, "...the discipline of the troops must be maintained by every possible means. Fraternization of our men with enemy troops must be prevented." He closed, needlessly it would seem, with no furloughs will be granted. Haig was already thinking even further ahead, already concerned that the men who had been trained and had been executing a war for years would not be easy to deal with once the fighting stopped and they got bored. He would tell his officers that they needed to determine, quote, "...a number of ways in which the men can be kept occupied. It is as much the duty of all officers to keep their men amused as it is to train them for war." End quote. As the news got out, and even though all of the Allied commanders knew now that the armistice was just hours away, they were determined to keep fighting until the very end. Foch wanted to keep the pressure on as long as possible. Pershing completely agreed. Both would order attacks on the last day. Pershing would forward along information that fighting would stop at 11 a.m., but did not rescind any previously ordered attacks from taking place. These actions were incredibly wasteful, because part of the provisions for the armistice was a general withdrawal of the German army over the course of no more than two weeks. This meant that any ground gained on this last day of fighting would have been given over involuntarily in a few days at most. Because of this drive for more attacks at the top of the armies, the precise actions along the front in the final hours were often determined by individual officers at divisional level or below. For example, of the 16 American divisions that were at the front on the morning of the 11th, seven would stand down from any attacks while they waited. These commanders had decided that since the signing was imminent, all other orders were unnecessary. This meant that nine American divisions would continue to fight and to execute attacks that were already planned. The same thing would happen on other areas of the front, like in the north with the Canadians. General Curry had orders to attack and take Mons on the morning of the 11th, and these orders would be carried out even though the Germans would have abandoned the town the next day anyway. Currie would later be questioned about these orders, and he would justify his decision by saying, quote, the reason Mons was taken was that we obeyed the orders of Marshal Foch that we should go on until we were ordered to stop. It was a proud thing that we were able to finish the war where it began, and that we, the young whelps of the old lion, were able to take the ground lost in 1914." Quote. These types of decisions all along the front would result in hundreds and thousands of casualties in the very final hours of the conflict. With the final document signed early in the morning on the 11th, it made for some very busy hours as communications officers and runners all along the front tried to spread the word of the coming armistice on both sides of the trenches. As the news got out, the reactions were different everywhere. Ernst Kleinmeier was a German telephone lineman. He would write in his diary that there were rumors of the armistice floating around long before official word was received. He would say, quote, We are just killing time. We are thinking and hoping that it is the real thing, that we won't have to endure another winter out here to suffer, freeze, die, and join our comrades who sleep the eternal sleep far from home. A short time later, his sergeant would appear in the doorway of his dugout and say, The armistice has been signed. For Kleelmeyer, the news was a relief, but there were still sounds of fighting all around him. Bedwebel George Bruker, who had been on the front since about 1914, was stuck in a trench early in the morning on the 11th. At 7 a.m., his company commander would come weaving through the trench, saying, Cease fire at 11. Pass the word. Cease fire at 11. But just as the news was getting passed around his unit, gas shells began falling on his positions. And when he got his gas mask on, he could see the shapes of American soldiers moving their way. After the war, he would write, quote, It was all the harder for us since we knew that the end could not be far off. We ducked at the sound of every explosion, which we had never bothered to do before. The old hands fought for the deepest, safest dugouts, and did not scruple to leave to the young recruits the 101 things which were risky. The thought of an attack was more terrifying to them than to the young soldiers who were still so inexperienced, so touchingly helpless, yet in spite of everything, so willing." When he looked at his watch during the American attack, it would be just 2 minutes to 11. At 8.56, the commander of the American 79th Division would radio his units and say, Hostilities will cease on the whole front at 11 hours today, French time. Until that hour, the operations previously ordered will be pressed with vigor. At 11 hours, our lines will halt in place, and no man will move one step backward or forward. This meant that they would continue their attacks until 11.00. At 9.20 a.m., Colonel Thomas Perch would tell his men that the forthcoming attack was canceled, only to then be informed that it was back on due to an order from his unit commander. This delay meant that it would not go forward until 10.40, which was just 20 minutes before the armistice, that's when Pierce's unit began moving through the fog towards the German lines. At 10.35, the American 26th Division attacked, while at the same time the 80th French Infantry Division went forward beside them. The French colonel in charge of the attack had received two messages at the same time, one saying that the war would be over at 11, but that he was also to attack at 9 a.m. All along the front, commanders prepared for the coming armistice. In some cases, battery commanders who were preparing to fire their final artillery rounds of the war attached long cords to their guns so that tens or even hundreds of men could pull the rope for the last round of the war. In some cases, 200 men would fire a single gun. Some units were actively fighting right up to 11 a.m., with men dying on both sides in the final minutes. With just a few minutes left, two German machine gun squads manning a roadblock would see American troops advancing towards them, and they would fire in self-defense. With the seconds counting down, the Americans would duck, but then one American would stand up and charge, Private Gunther. The Germans would once again be forced to fire. The time was 11.59. Gunther was dead. One soldier would later say of the armistice that, quote, "...victory was sudden and complete, the general sensation was that of awaking from a nightmare. Near Mons, when the firing stopped, some Australian troops saw a German officer rise up above the trenches, take off his helmet, bow, and then walk away." Many first-hand accounts talk about the silence, a huge change for the men who had experienced constant gunfire for months, maybe even years, There were often diary entries like this one, saying, quote, "'The silence is oppressive. It weighs in on one's eardrums.'" Corporal Carl Noble of the American 5th Division would say that almost instantly the demeanor of the men shifted. Quote, "'From the minute the firing ceased, the voice talks changed. Before this one might hear them say, if I ever get back to the States, but now everyone was saying, when I get back. They began to wonder how soon. Some thought that we would start at once and be back by early December.'" Others thought it would be Christmas time or New Year's Day before we saw the states again. I thought we wouldn't make it before February. Throughout the afternoon, the situation at the front could be best categorized as weird. And when night fell, celebrations along the front began in earnest for many units. Lieutenant Claire Grover would record, quote, "That night all the troops along the line were treated to the greatest display of fireworks ever set off. Both sides were setting off their entire pyrotechnic supply of rockets, very candles, red, blue, green, all were sparkling in the air." Private Schwartz would have a similar story to tell, quote, "We could see how we were surrounded by the Germans when they set off the different signal rockets. It was a very beautiful sight as they had a lot of different kinds." After the Germans were through celebrating, we tucked ourselves in for the night, as we were not allowed to celebrate in any way, except dig in to hold our line, in case anything would start back up. Along with various celebrations, final war orders were sent out to units by their commanding officers, and many of these, especially on the German side, there were congratulations and word to try and ease the pain of defeat. General Karl von Eamon would write to his troops that, undefeated and tested again and again in numerous battles, you are terminating the war in an enemy country. What you have accomplished in the face of an enemy force many times superior to ours in number belongs to history. With unbroken ranks, each one staunchly in his place, proudly as we left in 1914, so we want to return to our native soil. The war was over. After the war, especially in America, there were lengthy discussions and investigations into the actions of the armies on the 11th. The fact that so many soldiers were killed in attacks after it was known that the war was ending was something of a scandal. In America, the congressional investigation would say that this was needless slaughter, but the final report stopped short of open criticism of the army, avoiding any direct accusations of incompetence or blame. I hope you will join me next episode as we look at the immediate aftermath of the armistice. Germany is near revolution, the high seas fleet determines that it doesn't want to be captured, and the Allies try to deal with the immediate effects of victory.